this yes. is hell. Okay, okay. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com, the world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell airs on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com, thrice weekly on the U.K.-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at beweretheradio.com. And we are very proud to be now airing on CKUW in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. If you'd like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station or community radio station, email us at chuckatthisishell.com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to our show and why you'd love to hear it carried in your neck of the woods. The promises that were made about natural gas all sounded fantastic. It was said to be cleaner burning than gasoline or coal, the extraction of which was not as destructive to the environment. Natural gas and its its extraction would not contribute to climate change like other fossil fuels have done and continue to do. The new energy source would provide jobs for Appalachian and Rust Belt workers who had lost their employment. The local economies that were suffering uh, since the decline in, of manufacturing and the advent of free trade politics would see huge improvements due to natural gas extraction. Natural gas would be a bridge fuel to even cleaner sources of energy as an infrastructure for wind, solar, and other alternative energy sources ramped up. It turns out none of that was completely true or even true at all. I mean, sure, natural gas does burn cleaner than other fossil fuels like coal, but it's still a fossil fuel and its extraction has a far greater impact on the environment than proponents of natural gas said it would. And now with what many have said is historic legislation, the Biden administration has signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law the coal industry will be rewarded yet again for burning climate change causing fossil fuels all in an attempt to save coal mining jobs. Yet it would actually be cheaper to make all the miners overnight millionaires than to keep their jobs and their workplaces burning fossil fuels. In a few minutes we will talk about all the problems with the miracle of natural gas when we have the return of senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, Sean O'Leary, who has posted a new Report titled Misplaced Faith, How Policymakers' Belief in Natural Gas is Driving Rural Pennsylvania into an Economic Dead End. You may remember Sean being on the show last year when we spoke with him about his then-just-published study, Appalachia's Natural Gas Counties, Contributing More to the U.S. Economy and Getting Less in Return. The Ohio uh, River Valley Institute is a nonprofit research and communications center that strives to provide sound research for a more sustainable, equitable, democratic, and prosperous Appalachia. Sean's focus is on energy and petrochemicals. You can find out more about the Institute at OhioValleyInstitute.org. You can follow the Ohio Valley Ohio River Valley Institute on Twitter at O underscore R underscore V and 
underscore I O underscore R underscore V underscore I. And you can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean H O'Leary followed by the number one. I am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing is lindsey gory lindsey how are you and how was your three-day labor day weekend well i mean i work on saturday and sunday and monday's always my day off so, so it's the same as always <laughs> yeah but you know it yeah but i had a dream last night that no, i like forgot me. to come here it was pretty funny I, like, oh really you yeah. forgot yeah, like I in my dream it's like ten oh one AM and I'm like, Oh my god, I'm supposed to be somewhere. <laughs> Wait, so are you having are you having school dreams now about coming here to You know, the thing is I don't think it was really about coming here. It was really about I had a dentist appointment. I made a dentist appointment this morning. It was rescheduled from when I was sick and I'm like avoiding it still. So I'm like blowing off this dentist appointment too. So I think that's what it was like really about. You know, but I, yes, to the school dreams. It was just like my SAT dreams. <laughs> the exact same thing, exactly. Uh, but Dan had me covered. It was okay. Oh, there you go. Oh, in your dream, in too. My, oh, that's in my dream. That's I, fantastic. I got here and I was like, Dan's already here. Like, Wow. I'm very looking, um, very much looking forward to going and seeing a dentist. I've not seen a den- dentist since right before the pandemic hit. Me, too. And my, and my dentist retired in the meantime. So now I'm trying to find a dentist and it's driving me crazy. If you find a dentist that you like, please tell me. Because I'm going to do a survey. Okay. So, like, so this dentist, <laughs> I also didn't trust because she texted me yesterday morning. I'm like, it's Labor Day. And I'm like, I'm I'm trying to find a dentist who's like not behind on their bills, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. My Labor Day weekend began with a going away party for a friend of mine who is moving back to his childhood home. It was great to see lots of uh, our mutual friends. I have not seen them since prior to the uh, pandemic. In fact, I was so happy to see one of my friends who I had not seen since 2019 that I did what I I always did prior to the virus, and that was gave them a huge hug. And unfortunately, I was so excited about seeing this person. I picked them up off their feet which, pro tip, is not a good idea if you are like me in less than two months out of a major life-saving surgery on your digestive system. Because of that operation, I'm not supposed to be lifting anything, you know, more than 15 pounds, let alone a human being. I'm not supposed to be using my stomach muscles at all, which is a very difficult thing not to do. So when I lifted my friend in a loving embrace, and, and they very graciously you know, hugged me back, I am pretty certain I strained a muscle or had another hernia, or I have no idea, but I was in a lot of pain for the next couple of days. The rest of the time this past weekend, I was working on making all the preparations necessary for our Saturday, September 17th, This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party. We worked out some de- details, like the doors are going to open at 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, despite anything I've ever said before this moment, 3 p.m., Saturday, September 17th, 3 in the afternoon, and we've confirmed the musical performers who will be playing, and we will share that following our talk with our guest. Join us during summer's final weekend on Saturday, September 17th at 3 p.m. in Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. For our 26th anniversary party, not only will there be three live musical acts, but there will be great food, a raffle of This Is Hell-related prizes, and the closing of the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art Show. 
If you were at the opening of This Is Art back in July during Carrie's celebration of 50 years in business, it's worth coming back to see the show as there will be additional works of art that were not here at the opening. That's Saturday, September 17th at 3 p.m. in Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. We hope to see you all there. It's a great way to meet other listeners of This Is Hell, and I'm certain that if you have a shared appreciation for This Is Hell, then you likely share many other interests as well. Stay tuned in as we will be announcing the musical performers following our talk with Sean. Lindsay, please share with us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell <laughs> is how are you disrupting your workplace this Labor Day? I liked your dramatic <laughs> reading of that question. I was scrolling, I was scrolling, I was like, where is it? <laughs> okay, tell one more time, what is it again? This week's question from hell is how are you disrupting your workplace this Labor Day? <laughs> In a dramatic reading. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirts, tote bags, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. As well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century uh, flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Where you'll, you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Sebastian Vupper and his segment, The Past into the Present, all about how historical context applies to what is happening in our world today. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Lindsay has this week's hangover cure. At least, I hope she does. I do. I'm pretty sure I sent it to you. This, yeah. This week's hangover cure is... Submerging your face in ice-cold water. <laughs> <laughs> a Newsweek article, pharmacist shares alternative hangover cure in video. It works wonders, reports Dr. Chris Jackson, a doctor of pharmacy who previously served as a combat medic and infantry officer in the U.S. Army, regularly posts to social media offering insight and advice on a variety of health concerns. However, one of his latest videos, posted under the handle Dr. Chris PharmD has got people talking and with very good reason. Dr. Jackson's self-described weird hangover cure is really a little different than most. Newsweek explains, for one thing, it doesn't involve any kind of supplement, but rather just a bowl full of ice and water. Dr. Jackson explains in the 11 second clip, if you didn't prepare your body for a night of drinking, this might be the solution for you. Submerging your face in ice-cold water is going to activate the diver's reflex. This turns on the part of your brain that's responsible for digestion, which might help with nausea. Dr. Jackson tells followers it is a low-key solution that helps with migraines, anxiety, hangovers, and, in his opinion, it works wonders. That makes this week's hangover cure, submerging your face in ice-cold water. Is it just me or a doctor of pharmacy who previously served as a combat medic and infantry officer in the U.S. Army 
learns from another infantry doctor that submerging your face in ice-cold water is a hangover cure, which sounds a lot like waterboarding. Is there some weird coincidence there that... I mean, maybe it also is good for, I don't know, PTSD? Maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> or I, causing PTSD? Y- yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Very iffy on weird. this one. Now, a word from our sponsors, and as we are completely listener-supported, that means from you, our listening audience, you can email us with your guest or topic suggestions, uh, constructive or even destructive criticism, if you'd like, at chuck at com. And if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally during that interview with your suggested guest. Not only can you email us, message us via Facebook, and DM us via Twitter, you can send us real stuff in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And that's what listener Andrew did, who not only sent us a handwritten letter, which is always cool, but they also sent a hard copy of a real-life publication printed on newsprint, and that publication is... The Anarchist Review of Books. Here's Andrew's letter to us. Just finished reading the latest issue of this new publication, which I thought might interest you and the crew at This Is Hell. It's not highly theoretical. It really is a traditional literary review in the vein of New York Review of Book or New York Book Review or a Paris Review, only with a title that assures opposing all authority is very much in the mix. Since I started listening to This Is Hell a few years ago, I have not heard you interview any fiction writers or poets, but perhaps you'll find some solid reads for yourself or your, your friends in these pages. I run an online anti-profit bookstore, not not-for-profit, anti-profit, out of my basement in western Massachusetts called MassiveBookshop.com. And the Anarchist Review of Books has already turned me on to some cool stuff that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. I also work as a mail carrier and listen to This Is Hell almost every day on the route. Hope you like the Anarchist Review of Books, and thanks for keeping it real, real deep in debt. Andrew, first of all, I just got to say, shout out to every mail carrier who listens to the show, because we apparently, that's one of our biggest demographics for listeners is mail carriers. So thanks to all of the postal workers out there. And if you work for UPS, I'm all for you guys going on strike. Thanks, Andrew. And unsurprisingly, the first article in the issue Andrew sent is written by a recent guest here on This Is Hell, Stephen Thrasher, who we spoke with in August about his new book, The Viral Underclass. The article at the uh, Anarchist Review of Books by Stephen is entitled Cages, the Liberal Carceral State. So I went to MassiveBookshop.com, and the site is apparently down. However, if you go to Bookshop Massive on Twitter, Massive Bookshop is described as the bookstore that bails people out of jail. And that's a bookstore I want to shop at. There's also a link to a website with the URL. I don't even want to tell you. It's really long. Just go to their Twitter handle, uh, Bookshop Massive, and you'll see the uh, URL. So that takes you to a website with a front page offering several links, including those to No Tech for Apartheid, Millennials Are Killing Capitalism, and Yes, This Is Hell. And there's plenty more. So check out Bookstore Massive, Bookshop Massive, Bookshop, what is it? Bookshop Massive or Bookstore Massive? I got to go look look back. Bookshop Massive on Twitter. And thanks again, Twitter, for turning us on to anarchistreviewofbooks.com. And who knows? Maybe we'll, we'll be making an announcement later this week about the Anarchist Review of Books as a possible raffle prize at the anniversary party. 
Again, if you want to contact us, email chuck at thisishell.com, message us via Facebook, tweet at us, or just send us actual stuff in the actual mail. And if you do, we'll likely share on air whatever you sent us, however you did, with everyone listening. Coming up, natural gas turns out not to be the miracle everybody was imagining it would be. Lindsay will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how are you disrupting your workplace this Labor Day week? How are you disrupting your workplace this Labor Day? We'll also have this week in Rotten History and tell you who will be on the show later this week. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. Natural gas was supposed to be the next best thing since, well, maybe not the next best thing, but the second best thing to other alternative energy sources like solar, wind, geothermal. But until we can get all that alternative renewable energy online, natural gas was supposed to be great for the environment, for fighting climate change, for giving people jobs, and for helping local economy. Turns out, not so much. Here to get us caught up on what's happening with natural gas, which is a fossil fuel senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, Sean O'Leary returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new report titled Misplaced Faith, How Policymakers' Belief in Natural Gas is Driving Rural Pennsylvania into an Economic Dead End. You can find out more about the Ohio River Valley Institute at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. Follow them on Twitter at O underscore R underscore V underscore I. And follow Sean on Twitter at Sean H. O'Leary, followed by the number one. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sean. Hi, Chuck. It's great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show. And I guess the first question I should ask is a follow-up from our last conversation that we had with you. Uh, what was the response to the report that we discussed with you on last year's show, which seems to be a precursor to this report? Cursing and vituperation in the extreme. <laughs> <laughs> so it worked. It worked. Congratulations. Well, it, it does because, you know, it, try as we might with facts to uh, – expose the realities of what's happening in the regions of Appalachia that are producing uh, now an immense amount of natural gas, almost 40% of all the natural gas the U.S. produces. There is still, you know, even in the region itself, and especially in the region itself, a pervasive myth that it is the foundation uh, for economic development in the region, when in fact, all of the statistics show that it's turned out to be exactly the opposite. How do you feel about the phrase that natural gas is a bridge fuel to alternative fuels? The, well, it, it, I used the word myth a moment ago, <laughs> and you just added a new one to the list. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was a contention that people were making literally 15 or 20 years ago. And if it was ever true, which I don't think is the case, but even if it was ever true, that's clearly no longer the case because I think may, folks may be surprised to hear that in this nation, because of the decline of coal, natural gas is now the single greatest source of uh, carbon emissions in this country. 
yet we have this idea that it's clean burning. We see, I see buses on the street every day saying, hey, we, you know, uh, advertising on the side saying that this is a natural gas fuel bus. Therefore, we are not contributing to the uh, to climate change as much as we are. Why do you think that we have this incredibly misleading idea of natural gas? Is it because of the natural gas industry and their very good job at uh, selling the idea to the public? Is it politicians who are selling it to the public? Is it the media that's selling it to the public? Why do we have such a misunderstanding about natural gas, in your opinion? I think it begins with the name. We call it natural gas, and I think that adjective natural causes people to assume that it's uh, a pretty benign substance. Uh, you know, certainly compared to coal. But yeah, uh, what you just said about the industry promoting uh, natural gas as an alternative substance. And in fact, um, I came across just a couple of months ago an internal document from a gas industry conference that was devoted to the subject of messaging and the gas industry. Part of their strategy is specifically to distinguish natural gas from coal and compare it, contrast it as a clean energy resource that is uh, that they claim complements the introduction of renewable resources like wind and solar. So we're talking about an industry that is quite consciously trying to deny both what it is and its past in order to align itself with renewable resources. So does it distract us from pursuing other alternative fuels? Are we, uh, pun intended, are we wasting energy trying to have this bridge fuel work instead of taking those resources and just putting them towards solar, window, wind, and alternative fuels? Or is, this, is it necessary to do something like this, something that is somewhat better than coal or burning uh, petroleum? Uh, is it necessary to do something like this while we are ramping up this new infrastructure for cleaner fuels? No, it, it has, natural gas has very much become a barrier, uh, not an aid or a bridge for uh, decarbonization. Uh, and yes, to the degree that we're devoting resources to natural gas or even attempts to clean up natural gas, those are resources that are being diverted from more cost-effective resources that are better at in terms of cleaning up or reducing or even eliminating carbon emissions. So it is a costly distraction at this point, and in many cases, it's a barrier. And I would add to that that we're not just talking about um, the issue of decarbonization, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also a barrier, and I think this is critically important, it's also a barrier to economic recovery. It's bad for the environment and it's bad for the economy. It's bad for jobs, it's bad for workers, and it's bad for people's health. And you know the degree to which we continue to try to perpetuate it, um, which we're trying to do in some significant pro provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act that you mentioned in your intro a moment ago, um, yes, it is counterproductive. And you start off your uh, study by writing that it is nearly an article of faith in Pennsylvania politics that the Appalachian natural gas boom has been at best an economic miracle and at worst a fortuitous backstop that stemmed the losses of jobs and population that have plagued the region over the last two decades. So it's not just in Pennsylvania, though your, your focus is on Pennsylvania in this report. It's throughout the Appala Appalachian re region. How much of whatever success 
the natural gas boom is having now. How much of that is due to or even dependent upon what you call a remarkable array of subsidies and forms of regulatory relief? How much of this is due to the industry itself and how much of this is due to government largesse? Well, it, it, it's nearly, I, I won't say all due to government largesse, but you have to remember that up until recently, meaning since the uh, war in Ukraine broke out and gas prices, global gas prices went through the ceiling, we're talking about an industry that was not making any money. It was losing money hand over fist for investors in it. And were it not for the uh, various subsidies and incentives provided by government, it, the house of cards probably would have collapsed a great deal sooner. Um, now that we've seen in just the recent year or so in exports, uh, the industry that had been losing money hand over fist has been thrown a lifeline now. And that's a worrisome prospect because that lifeline will, of course, contribute to its perpetuation, even though we now have resources like wind, like solar, like battery storage that are not only cleaner, but they're also more cost-effective means of you know, producing energy. <clears throat> and you write of the natural gas boom uh, being an economic miracle and ending two decades of job and population loss. Quote, it's a belief that strongly influences political candidates' platforms and policy proposals in anticipation of upcoming midterm elections. And it has given rise to support for a natural gas-based regional hydrogen, hydrogen and carbon capture hub, a subject which dominates contemporary economic development and energy transition conversations in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and where you are in West Virginia. So uh, how much do, do these things, does this, uh, is this regional hub that they're discussing right now, this regional hydrogen and carbon capture hub, is this getting bipartisan support and how politically unpopular is it to be opposed to this proposed regional hub? Well, <clears throat> yes, it is getting uh, significant bipartisan support. And I suppose the evidence for that is seen principally in Pennsylvania right now, where, you know, as you know, a lot of probably the most important political races are now underway as we come up on the midterm election. Um, but in Pennsylvania, uh, the push for the development of a hydrogen hub is being led by Governor Tom Wolf, who's a Democrat, and the Democratic nominee for governor, uh, which will be decided in this year's midterm, uh, Shapiro, is also highly supportive of the development of, an of a natural gas-based hydrogen hub in the region. Uh, as far as what are the uh, you know, drawbacks or risks that candidates run if they come out in opposition to it? The answer is we don't really know because nobody has done so on uh, at least on, on a statewide level uh, in either party so far. Um, so do you think the hub then is inevitable as it is impossible for voters to vote against the hub as it has bipartisan support? I mean, we, it doesn't seem like Pennsylvania voters have a Democratic choice when it comes to this energy hub. So do you think it is inevitable? No, it's not inevitable. And in fact, if I had to place a bet, I would say it will probably never come to fruition. The reason is that it is horrifically expensive. 
And I know that a lot of people, including some of the politicians who I just mentioned, have been seduced by the fact that, you know, in the infrastructure bill that was passed at the end of last year, um, about a little over $8 billion was earmarked for the development of four hydrogen hubs around the country, one of which is presumed to be hydrogen manufactured from natural gas and in all likelihood located in Appalachia. And then also in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, there are massive subsidies, 100% uh, plus subsidies for the production of hydrogen from natural gas. Now, despite those immense figures, the fact is that it would cost to build a hydrogen hub in Appalachia hundreds of billions of dollars. So the fact that the government has already allocated $8 billion, about a quarter of which would go to Appalachia for $2 billion, that barely scratches the surface of what would be required to actually bring to fruition this thing. And in that respect, you know, the hydrogen hub isn't a whole lot different than other ice cream castles in the air that have been held out or dangled before this region before. If you think back just a few years ago, people were talking about natural gas uh, producing in Appalachia a new petrochemical cluster of industry that would rival in size the petrochemical industry along the Gulf Coast. Well, you know, that dream has largely evaporated. And even if you go back before that to the dawn of the fracking boom, it was the fracking boom that was going to deliver economic salvation and jobs, which of course also never materialized. So in that respect, Chuck, when people talk about the hydrogen hub, it feels as though we're watching the same play that's been run before run again. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. Uh, you had a blog post in late August titled, Absurd, You Say? I do, and so will you, when you see what coal-fired power plants with carbon uh, capture will cost. And in that uh, blog post, you write about the Inflation Reduction Act, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But in your report, you write some of the report's critics, the report that you put out last year, and then I would assume, again, <laughs> they'll be the same critics this time around. Uh, have taken refuge in a watered-down claim that although jobs may not have proliferated in the degree anyone would like, or that they promised, economic conditions in the region would have been much worse had it not been for the natural gas industry's growth. This is the kind of excuse you always hear in retrospect. So instead of them saying that there would be, you know, there was a huge boom, it's now well, it's better than it would have been without natural gas. The natural gas industry does produce jobs, but it also produces externalities, other effects to the people of Pennsylvania. So is Pennsylvania, and can we even quantify it, is Pennsylvania better off with the natural gas boom overall? Well, yeah, the reason we focused on Pennsylvania in this most recent report is that it happens to provide a natural experiment that allows us to test that proposition that natural gas, while it may not have been a, the salvation uh, or the job-creating beast that folks suggested it would be, that it somehow compensated for other failings in the rest of the economy, that it saved us from an even worse fate. And the reason I say na Pennsylvania provides a natural experiment is that there are 30 non-metropolitan rural counties in Pennsylvania 10 of which 
happened to have participated very, very heavily in the natural gas boom, and 20 of which did not. Now, the beauty of these 30 counties is that when you look at them, both the natural gas counties and the non-natural gas counties were prior to 2008 when the natural gas boom began, they were on very much the same economic trajectory. When you go back and you look at changes in gross domestic product, changes in employment and changes in population, between the year 2000 and 2008, they paralleled one another very, very closely. And in fact, they were at that time even paralleling the state of Pennsylvania as a whole. And then in 2008, everything changed. The 10 counties that participated heavily in the natural gas boom saw their economic output skyrocket um, to the point that in just about a six year period, their economic output increased by more than 50%, which is much, much greater than the nation or the state of Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, the economic output from the counties that did not participate heavily in the natural gas boom stayed relatively flat. It only grew by about 10% or so. And so we're talking about a massive difference between two sets of counties that previously had, as I said before, been on almost the same economic trajectory. But what we saw is that while economic output in the natural gas counties boomed. When you look at measures of economic well-being, and in this particular study, we looked both at jobs and also at, and at population. And I, I'll talk a little more about why population growth is so important in a second. But not only did neither jobs nor population grow in a fashion commensurate with the increase in output, they actually went into absolute decline to the point that Pennsylvania's natural gas counties not only did not perform any better than the counties that did not experience the natural gas boom, but they are now among the nation's worst afflicted counties in terms of job loss and population loss. And this all leads to this kind of misnomer, I think, that people have, that gross domestic product, as that goes up, it's always best for the population. As you write, indicators such as GDP, unemployment rates, and stock market indices are often cited as measures not just of economic output, jobs, and wealth, but also of societal health and the general well-being of communities. Such measures are ultimately inadequate to the task, principally because human well-being is too complex to be captured by a simple economic or financial metric. So why wouldn't economic or financial success always equate to societal well-being? Isn't economic or financial success at the root of all happiness for everyone individually and collectively as a community? The answer is quite simply that the usual measures that you just listed of economic success, principally, I, I think probably the two uh, economic statistics that most people land on very quickly when they think about you know, how do you assess whether a place is doing well or not, are GDP, um, growth in output, and the unemployment rate. And the fact is that when you're in a region like Appalachia, uh, which is very rich in extractable resources, we experience something called the uh, resource curse, in which growth in GDP and even declines in unemployment rate 
are utterly detached from actual well-being on the ground. And I can explain to you how relatively easily. And that is in most places, um, for instance, if you put together a ranked list of, if you rank the counties of the United States by per capita GDP, and you put together, put next to it a list of counties by per capita income, you will see that by and large, the two lists are almost identical in their ranking. However, when you look at the counties in Appalachia that produce natural gas, if they were a state, they would rank ninth in the United States for per capita output or GDP, but they would only rank 41st for per capita income. And that's because very little of the money that's invested in the development of natural gas or the sale of natural gas ever enters local economies in this region. And so it presents, and so GDP presents a very, very false picture of what's happening on the ground because most of that money goes to capital, not to labor. And these are highly capital intensive industries. And most of the people who own capital don't live in Appalachia. So, um, so what happens to an economic structure then where it is a, there's a disconnect from the metrics and the indices that relate to gross domestic pro product or other uh, things involving the economy? What happens when there's a disconnect from what's good for the economy and what's good for the well-being of human beings? What happens to that economic system? Well, in, in the case of Appalachia, what happens is that the region does not benefit from the wealth that's being generated from, you know, in this case, the extraction of natural gas, but the region does have to endure the costs of it. Because while, you know, most of the attention justifiably these days is focused on global warming, greenhouse gas emissions, and all of the uh, devastation that those things can cost, we shouldn't forget that there is also local pollution, local water pollution, local uh, water pollution, uh, and that those things have really significant effects. And in the case of Appalachia, what we're seeing is that as the natural gas industry grows in the region and imposes a greater footprint and is more and more disruptive of local economies, it's driving people away. I mean, we're talking about, you know, rural America. Uh, if you look at the various rural counties in the 50 states in America, you'll see that the worst afflicted over a period of a decade, of the last decade, suffered a population loss of about 6%. Well, you know, guess what? In the case of the... Um, fracking counties or the natural gas counties that I mentioned before, they are right there at 6.1%. They're right there with the worst population loss counties in the nation as a whole, even though they're producing more and more wealth. And that's because, as I mentioned in the report, you know, extractive industries, dominant industries tend to get the conditions that they want. They, they can impose those conditions on a community. And so what we're seeing is for an industry that values low property values, low expectations for 
clean water and clean air, they drive people out. They manage to achieve those things. And it is a terrible price to pay because if you do care about a place and if you do care about those communities, when you lose population, and particularly when the population you're losing tends to be the most highly educated, the most highly motivated, the youngest people in your society, that makes it really, really hard to recover economically down the road because you're seeing your talent pool, your greatest economic resource being depleted and lost. We are speaking with Sean O'Leary, senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, which you can find at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. You can follow them on Twitter at O underscore R underscore V underscore I. Sean has a new report out called Misplaced Faith, How Policymakers' Belief in Natural Gas is Driving Rural Pennsylvania into an Economic Dead End. You may remember he was on our show last year when he discussed his then-just-published study, Appalachia's Natural Gas Counties Contributing More to the U.S. Economy and Getting Less in Return. You can find that interview by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on Sean's last name, O'Leary, and you can follow him on Twitter at Sean H. O'Leary followed by the number one. And you write that it is so it's worrying that by the measure of population change, rural America is struggling. A recent analysis by the Pew Foundation found that while the populations of U.S. cities and suburbs grew by 8% over the past decade, they fell by half of a percent in rural counties. In some states, rural population decline was much deeper. Pennsylvania's rural counties lost 4.7% of their uh, residents, tying New York for the sixth greatest rate of rural population loss in the U.S., as you were just saying. So what do you think is driving rural population decline? Is it more than just jobs, more than only economic or financial opportunities? Is it something uh, uh, something as well as the economic situation, the financial situation? No, it has a great deal to do with quality of life. And quality of life is being destroyed. I, there was a report, and there have been many reports, frankly, at this point, but there was a report released just the week before last showing that children who live within a couple of miles proximity to drilling pads suffer higher rates of cancer. Uh, People know this. Uh, Living in a region that is being overrun with natural gas fracking pads and all of the associated infrastructure, compressor plants and other infrastructure that goes with that is not a pleasant thing. Um, It is noisy, it is dusty, and it is toxic. And as a result of that, yes, people move away. Even those who do very well, because, you know, of course, there are property owners upon whose land is being leased and who, as a result, receive royalties from the production of natural gas. But even people who are benefiting from it are, are among the people who are leaving the region because they they hang on to the land. They're more than happy to uh, lease the land. But as in terms of where they'd like to live, you don't want to be there. So why should, uh, yeah, this is a horrible question to ask, but why should we be concerned about rural population decline? Why do you find that so worrying? What does it matter where people live in, if they live in uh, rural areas or suburban areas or urban areas, why is it so significant? Why is it so important that we should be concerned about rural population decline? I, I would use another adjective 
Chuck, I would say it's tragic. And again, you know, I, I come from a little town in West Virginia uh, whose population, well, even the nearby city of Wheeling, West Virginia, has seen its population by cut by more than half. And, let, you know, to get out of the statistics, I'm just going to talk to you about it as somebody from Warwood, West Virginia, and what his family has gone through. And that is when you're talking about population loss, what you're really talking about are families being broken up. Uh, it may just be by distance. It may not be, you know, uh, because children are being taken away, but that's not how it feels. I mean, I can tell you when I go home, and I I just got back last night, as a matter of fact, from uh, leading a group of people on a tour of Appalachia through the greater Ohio Valley. And I will tell you that if you ask people how they feel about things, how they feel about life where they are, and what worries them or what saddens them, the first thing they will tell you is, you know, I wish my kids didn't have to leave. I hope they do, but I wish they didn't have to in order to get educated or find jobs or further their careers. Um, there is an emotional and a spiritual and a cultural toll that is being extracted. And it's hard both for the folks who leave but it's even harder for those who are left behind and who stay and try to make a life of it and face an ever greater challenge every day. Um, the loss of those communities, the fracturing of those families, that's really the tragedy behind it. And when you think about it, when you talked about you know, economic prosperity, I mean, what does economic prosperity mean other than human happiness? And that is what is getting plowed under in, in Appalachia right now because of this. So uh, as you were pointing out earlier, this is a research resource curse where the natural gas profits actually leave the area where they're being made or whenever there is a resource extraction where profits do not help out the people who live in that local area. Instead, they leave the county or even the state or even the region. Uh, and you were just pointing out how the, this breaks up families when it comes to rural population decline and how this whole thing, when it comes to the energy hub or when it comes to nat natural gas in general, is all supported by, you know, if uh, you're a libertarian or somebody on the right, you would say it's government interference in the market. So this would seem to be then the energy hub and natural gas extraction. Oh. They would seem to both be anti-family and anti-market. And if there's things that have any bipartisan support when you hear it on the campaign trail, the Democratic Party and the Republican, Republican Party candidates are always trying to outdo each other when it comes to showing support for the family or showing support for capitalism for the market. So what explains why there's bipartisan support for something that has uh, bipartisan opposition when it comes to the effects on the family and the effects on the market? <laughs> I hate to come back to the single word, but it, it's kind of hard to avoid. And I think clearly money plays a large part in all of this. Um, and I, I don't know, that's that's not something we study. I'm not an expert in campaign finance or other forms of corruption, but clearly uh, when you look at the attitude of policymakers, not just at the federal, but also at the state and even at the local level, you, you recognize a couple of things are going on. While jobs are being lost and 
you know, while population is being lost, in many cases, county governments and state governments do reasonably well with tax revenues uh, as a result of natural gas fracking and coal extraction. And similarly, um, you know, politicians do. I mean, we're, we're talking about one of the most deep pocketed industries that exists. And so if I'm a county commissioner in Belmont County, Ohio, or Marshall County, West Virginia, or Green County, Pennsylvania, you know, I'm, I'm watching my budget, I'm watching my revenues, and I see the degree to which they're dependent as population is being lost on those industries. And so if those industries are doing well, and as they have been recently because of the war in Ukraine, and I see my revenue going up, that feels pretty good to me. And when that's happening, it's not, and you're also getting campaign contributions and other favors from industry, you know, the industry's really good at throwing trinkets out there. They'll build a school or rebuild a high school football stadium because it only costs a couple of million dollars. And we're talking about an industry that's generating hundreds of billions of dollars a year in, a reven in revenue. So to throw out a couple dozen elementary schools or high school football stadiums, that's chump change for these guys. But if you're a county commissioner, it looks and feels really good. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on individuals. I don't know who does or who doesn't. I'm not even sure of the degree to which, because of how pervasive the myth is, that people realize how great the contrast is between the claims of economic prosperity and the realities that face them. But I think it would be naive to disregard the financial incentives that that policymakers at all three levels of government feel. But even as you write, and as you were pointing out earlier, th there was a natural gas boom. You write that prior to 2009, the natural gas and uh, control counties also tracked one another closely for total employment and population change, and both trailed the state, uh, particularly for population growth. But unlike GDP, employment did not significantly rise. Initially, the natural gas counties managed to keep pace with the state, while the county control counties fell slightly behind. But by 2013, the natural gas counties saw employment continuously decline until by 2018, all gains achieved during the natural gas boom had been wiped out, resulting in employment levels that were only slightly better than those in the non-mining control counties. So why wasn't that natural gas boom sustainable? How likely is it that there can be a return to those natural gas boom days? I'm so glad you asked this question because it's one of the most important aspects that has only become clearer in the last year or so. And that is that as the natural gas industry matures, whatever economic benefits it initially conferred evaporate. And that's in large part because of mechanization, automation. It simply requires fewer and fewer people to produce the same amount of natural gas. And in that respect, Chuck, it's very much, it, it, what's happening right now is an accelerated version of what happened to Appalachia with coal. If you go back, and th this will blow your mind, if you go back to the late 1940s and 1950, West Virginia had a population larger than that of Florida. It had as large a congressional delegation. And at the time, 
about one in four to one in five jobs in West Virginia was in the coal industry. In the ensuing 40 years, the amount of coal being produced annually in West Virginia stayed more or less the same, but the number of jobs in coal dropped by 80%, and now it's actually 90% from where it was at its peak. And again, that's without any reduction in output. And so that happened over a 50-year period. We're seeing what happened in coal over a 50-year period happen with natural gas in a 15-year period to the point that even though the industry, the gas production now in Appalachia is greater than it's ever been, the number of jobs the industry provides is no greater now than it was before the natural gas boom began. You, in your blog post in late August titled Absurd, you say, I do, and so will you, when you see what coal-fired power plants with carbon capture will cost. You write the recently signed Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, offers coal and gas-fired power plants, as well as factories and other carbon-emitting facilities, a tax credit that will pay them $85 for every metric ton of carbon they capture and sequester underground. The goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the single largest source in the United States economy, the nation's electric grid, while also cutting emissions from various manufacturing industries whose processes make them hard to electrify. So in your opinion, how much can that goal be met through incentivizing capture and sequestration to the tune of 85 bucks per metric ton of carbon capture and and, uh, sequestration? Oh, a a fair amount of it could be met that way. It's just that it's a horrifically expensive and completely unnecessary expense to incur because we have better ways of doing it. I mean, if your objective is, I mean, well, there are three objectives at work here. One is that you want to clean up the electric system. Two is that you want to have jobs. And three is you want to do it as inexpensively as possible. And on all three of those counts, transitioning to renewable resources would be way more effective. And I think the you know, greatest demonstration to that is the, the, the blog post that you're citing. In it, I point out that if you take an average size coal-fired power plant, it would produce at you know, current prices in the market about $380 million worth of electricity a year. When you give them a subsidy of $85 per ton for every ton of carbon they capture and sequester underground, that coal-fired power plant produces so much that the $85 subsidy translates into over $600 million a year in revenue. And so when you take the $380 million that the plant is earning from the electricity it produces, and then you add $600 million to it from subsidies for capturing uh, carbon, you're basically committing the nation uh, taxpayers and ratepayers to paying that coal-fired power plant over a billion dollars for $380 million worth of electricity. It is absurd. And in the case of gas-fired power plants, it's slightly less absurd, but you still would be paying that gas-fired power plant 
70% more than the electricity itself is actually worth. And why are you paying them to do that? You're actually paying them to dig up carbon from the ground and then put it back. There is no incremental output gain at all. You even point out how that's a worthless task. You write that that's ironic because the image of workers digging a hole and filling it back in is sometimes used as a metaphor for labor that's intrinsically worthless. Carbon capture and sequestration would make the uh, the uh, sorry metaphor manifest. And you write as good as, well. You write that switching from coal to renewable energy would pose one other problem. Folks who work in the coal plant and mines would lose their jobs. In our hypothetical coal plant, that might come to between 350 and 400 workers, as well as a few dozen more in mining. But you know what? It If it's really the workers we care about, the same federal government that is now prepared to pay the plant's owners $632 million a year for 12 years, more than $7 billion in total, to capture and sequester carbon, could instead write a severance check for a million dollars to every one of those 400 to 500 workers, and it would cost less than one year of the carbon capture tax subsidy. And I bet the workers would be happy too. So if it is cheaper to make coal miners overnight millionaires than to keep coal plants running, how aware are those who depend upon coal mining as a livelihood that it would be cheaper for them to be millionaires overnight than it would be keeping the industry going where they work? I, sadly, very few of them do. Uh, and one of the problems we have in Appalachia, less so because of programs like yours, but there is a pretty captive media environment, both newspaper broadcast and especially in radio, I would add, uh, so that this perspective and the facts that we've been talking about are not widely shared or understood. Uh, certainly, you know, folks like Senator Joe Manchin and others don't feel nearly the amount of pressure that they should in response to, uh, you know, statistics, facts like those that we've been citing. And it's especially tragic because, you know, for, again, it's not just the environmental loss that's going on here. It's the damage to people's lives and livelihoods that we're talking about, because at the same time, the rest of the nation is in the process of transitioning to clean energy resources and enjoying all of the job opportunities and expansion and employment that transition to clean resources makes to the degree that carbon capture and hydrogen derived from natural gas gain a foothold because of federal incentives in Appalachia, it will further shackle the Appalachian economy to those industries and prevent us from joining the rest of the country in sharing in the benefits from transitioning to clean energy. And so it, it's really a, a double whammy it's the fact that we're being uh, burdened with industries that are destructive of health and community and that are frankly probably terminal branches on the energy evolutionary tree, while at the same time the rest of the country is moving on to far more promising uh, resources from which we're again going to be left as Appalachia so often has been, from which again, we're going to be left behind if we don't 
stop it. And if I may, I'd throw in one other consideration. You asked at the beginning of the interview, you know, about the hydrogen hub that's being proposed. And I said, I, you know, I don't think it'll ever get built for the same reason the petrochemical cluster never got built. Uh, but for industry, the industry has figured out that's not the point. Industry doesn't care whether the hydrogen hub ever gets built. What they care about are all the subsidies and the incentives that federal and state governments provide to them in the belief by policymakers that in providing those incentives, they're going to bring the hydrogen hub about. And so the fact that the, the, the shiny object that's being dangled before policymakers never comes to fruition really doesn't matter to industry as long as they get the subsidies and the tax breaks and the regulatory relief that legislators provide in the belief, the false belief, that they're helping to bring about you know, this nirvana that's been held out before them. And that leads me to my last question that I have for you, Sean. First of all, thank you very much for being back on our show. We are speaking with senior researcher at the Ohio River Valley Institute, Sean O'Leary, who has posted a new report titled Misplaced Faith, How Policymakers' Belief in Natural Gas is Driving Rural Pennsylvania into an Economic Dead End. You can find that report at OhioRiverValleyInstitute.org. You can follow the Ohio River Valley Institute at O underscore R underscore V underscore I on Twitter. And you can follow Sean on Twitter at Sean O H O'Leary dot or sorry, Sean H O'Leary one. And you can search on his last name at our website to find the previous report that we discussed with him last year on the show. Just go to this is hell.com and search on O'Leary. So this leads me to our final question. And as you may or may not remember from the last time you were on, our final question is always the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You were just mentioning Joe Manchin and how this, you know, Inflation Reduction Act actually got passed when it was passed in the main the way the mainstream media pretty much covered this was it was a total shock they couldn't believe that chuck schumer and joe manchin actually got together to pass this inflation reduction act and they couldn't understand how did this happen when all these other attempts at passing all these other uh, plans of the biden administration all those seemed to fall through but this one passed and it was a complete surprise to them Yet there wasn't any real investigation into why it did pass. Joe Manchin, it would seem like to me that the reason that he allowed this to pass is all the subsidies that were for the coal industry that were in this report. If that is the case to you, what explains why the media didn't continue following that train of thought? Figuring out, okay, why would Joe Manchin support this? Then seeing all the incentives to the coal industry and making that a news story. Why did Joe Manchin... Get kind of get off of this, you know, Scott, you clean it scot free. I think Joe Manchin is often held up as he has been held up at least as a potential model for success in in politics for the Democratic Party. Um, you know, he's associated with the no labels movement, and you know, you can Google, go Google no labels and you'll see that there is actually a group, uh, at least a loose coalition of legislators and other folks who are devoted to finding what are ostensibly middle of the road policies, although it surely seems in most cases like the progressive side is expected to compromise by no label folks way more than folks on the other end of the political spectrum. 
but you know, I think there is um, a natural tendency for a lot of folks in the press to identify folks like Manchin and others as comparative moderates, they would say, when in fact, by historical uh, and ideological standards, they're actually deeply, deeply right-wing in their politics, particularly in their uh, adherence, not just to uh, market-driven uh, uh, policies, because as you, as you pointed out before, Chuck, these policies, these subsidies, which amount to greater than 100% subsidies for carbon capture and related technologies are actually anti-market. I mean, they're aggressively trying to reverse the market, which suggests that they're not in this uh, because out of driven by some sense of economic principle or philosophical principle, it's about who wins and loses. And they are, Joe Manchin is, and others are to a degree, making sure that the people that they want to win, win. Well, that's an answer from hell for a question from hell. Sean, I really appreciate you being back on the show. You know I'm going to annoy you in the future to have you back on if you do another follow-up report, and I'm sure you will. And people can find your blog and all of your writing over at the Ohio River Valley Institute website, ohioriververalleyinstitute.org. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chuck, and thank you for the work you and Lindsay and Sebastian and everybody else there do. It, it's really needed. Thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate it. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. If that conversation with Sean O'Leary on the broken promises of natural gas, that was in some way frightening or enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for your support. And if you do subscribe to our weekly bonus podcast exclusively on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, right now you can hear last week's edition of This Week in Hell, my weekly recap of what I got out of last week's show, which is likely not what you got out of last week's show, because, well, we're all very different people with very different histories listening in very different contexts. So there's that. And last week's show, to me, was about climate change being woke and the archaeological record of abortion. That is the willful ignorance of the destructive nature of fossil fuel extraction, the difference between how to think and what to think, and the impact of contemporary thought on, well, everything. We also shared a 2005 interview with N. Paul Divikar, founding member of the National Campaign for Dalit Human Rights, who 17 years ago spoke to us live from New Delhi. N. Paul Divikar now currently works for the campaign as an advocate for Dalit rights, an economic rights expert, and a human rights defender. And if you're not familiar with the term Dalit, it is the indigenous term for uh, untouchables, which is a term I don't like to use. He is also the general secretary of the uh, National Campaign for Dalit Human Rights. He serves as the chairperson of the Asia Dalit Rights Forum, which works in the South Africa region to ensure inclusion and to address issues of untouchability and caste-based discrimination. 
He has been one of the key actors in popularizing the sustainable development goals and to bring in the aspect of uh, inclusion in the discourse of the new development paradigm. He was recently voted by India's Outlook magazine as one of the 50 most influential Dalit leaders in the country. But the only way you can hear me talk about last week's shows, last week's show, Effect on Me, uh, and our discussion from 2005 on Dalit rights is to become a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do, you get immediate access to over, well, every one of our Patreon podcasts we've ever done, over 200 shows with each featuring a monologue from me that is not posted anywhere else online, plus an interview with from our 26 years of shows, an interview that is not available anywhere else online. You will also get a special secret code that gives you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from Hell is, how are you disrupting your workplace this Labor Day? How are you disrupting your workplace this Labor Day? So we have only four responses ah! on because <laughs> it's, it's late that's why because labor day was yesterday and so people are all thinking that this was from two weeks ago they're, but no it is from this week they're taking off yes. i guess well we have a response from david z okay uh how are they disrupting their workplace this labor day by being competent. Oh, well. <laughs> that sounds a little salty. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it does. Isn't happy with their coworkers. <laughs> uh, Pete Valavanis is disrupting uh, the bar that he owns yes. by getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's disrupting. I think, yeah, that's, I think I, maybe, that's the business model, isn't <laughs> it? I, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I if, having to go through like a day sober, that might... That be would be disrupting. Yeah, that would be disrupting. <laughs> just drink milk the whole time. Yes. Just just keep drinking glass of milk after uh -huh, glass of milk. Uh -huh. Now that will disrupt the bar. <laughs> Any more? Yes. John T is says my individual moats of encapsulated DNA have hired SARS COVID two as a life coach and motivational speaker. Yikes. <laughs> That's very difficult. Any more? One from SLS. Uh, by haunting it with the specter of communism. <laughs> That's a good way to disrupt your workplace. <laughs> All right, so we're going to have more of uh, your answers to this week's question from hell uh, later on this week. And, Lindsay, i got to tell you, you know, you've heard of this whole phrase, quiet quitting. I have, of course. Okay. I, it's just, you know, one of those, like, New York Times, NPR. Exactly. talking about that it. Everybody's, and it's dumb. All yeah. it means is that you're just doing the amount of work that you're supposed to be doing, not doing any additional work for no pay. That's basically what it means. Yeah. You're doing your 40 hours of work, and as soon as the your 40-hour work week is off, you turn off your phone, and you do not take any messages from work until you're starting to get paid again. That's all it is. You're just fulfilling your end of the obligation when your employer is trying to take advantage over you. So yesterday I'm watching local WGN Channel 9 News, and uh, they are teasing the next story. And the two anchor people say, uh, you've all heard of quiet quitting, but now there's, and they both smile and start laughing, quiet firing. We'll tell you about that in a little bit. They thought it was hilarious that they've changed from quiet quitting to the new stupid New York Times NPR phrase, 
quiet firing. I don't even know what quiet firing is, but the fact that they were laughing and having such a good time talking about quiet firing on Labor Day is a little bit disconcerting. Yeah, I have not heard of it. Yeah, and let us never speak of either of those things ever again on the show. Promise? All right, but I'm not going to... I need to get paid for all my Instagram posts now. (laughs) That's right, exactly. (laughs) See? See? Uh, And uh, people can find us on Instagram at This Is Hell Radio. Is that correct, or is it just This Is Hell? At This Is Hell Radio, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This Is Hell is is a... You know, everybody wants that handle. Yes, everybody does. It's time for Nasty Gnarly Nauseous. Yes, they wanted it so bad, I said they could have it for $10,000 and never heard from those people again. It's time for Nasty Gnarly Nauseous, Naughty, Nerdy, Icky, Drippy, Sticky, Goopy, Gloppy, Globby, Gory, This Week in Rotten History. On September 9th, 1957, 65 years ago this week, desegregation of public elementary schools began in Nashville, Tennessee, and people who have been listening to the show for years may remember we did an interview on that and how desegregation never really happened and that Nashville was the incubator for all of the anti-Brown versus Board of Education reaction. But some white residents of the area in Nashville were not happy with the situation and racial tensions had been building for weeks. The school district's plan was to integrate the schools one grade at a time, introducing African-American first graders into predominantly white schools and then doing the same thing again every year until all 12 grades were racially integrated, thereby making the students uh, comfortable and uh, used to the fact that there are people of color in your classroom at a young age, so by the time that they're graduating, it's nothing that is different from uh, any time of life beforehand. Which all makes sense in a city like Nashville that was notorious for its racism, like most U.S. cities were at the time. So on this day, three years after the landmark Supreme Court decision in Brown versus uh, Board of Education, a total of 19 black first graders were enrolled into eight previously all-white schools. It's a little more than two black first graders per school. As they arrived for class in the morning, they were met by crowds of white protesters, and there's nothing quite like the lesson of intolerance being taught by your parents just outside of your school doors. In front of one school, the protesters carried Confederate flags and signs bearing such slogans as keep our white schools white, and God is the author of segregation, because the Confederate flag, as we all know, has nothing to do with racism. I'm certain the crowd was simply celebrating their southern heritage of racism. At other schools, a white supremacist agitator named John Casper harangued the crowd. Yes, harangued the crowd, and a minister named Fred Stroud began preaching on the sidewalk. I believe both of them have podcasts now, quoting Bible verses and warning white parents that if they allowed their children to mix with black kids, God would send them to hell. Now that's Southern heritage. But despite all the threats and harassment, the teachers welcomed the African-American children into class and there was no physical violence, proving children were far more humane than their racist parents. Meanwhile, the scene at one other school, Hattie Cotton Elementary, was quiet. The school had admitted one six-year-old black girl, but there were no protesters. Instead, white mothers arrived one at a time to pull their kids out of class and take them home while cars full of white men kept circling the block, repeatedly driving past the school entrance. 
So were the mo- mothers taking their kids out of class because they feared for their children's safety, which was being threatened and intimidated by those same kids' fathers? Later that night, a white mob gathered downtown in front of the Tennessee State Capitol in Nashville. Hot tempers gave way to rock and bottle throwing, as they usually do, vandalizing and arson. Finally, half an hour after midnight, Hattie Cotton Elementary School was blown up by some 50 pounds of dynamite, causing damage amounting to half a million dollars adjusted for inflation. The one African-American girl who had been admitted to classes there was quietly transferred by her parents the next day to an all-black school. And you gotta wonder how many of those white students took that lesson of racism from their parents to heart and how many of those children have now grown up and are now behind the fear-mongering around critical race theory today. Now that's rotten history. And this is hell. Lindsay, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell This Week? Tomorrow we have Lindsay Burgeon, author of Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. Lindsay is a writer, oral historian, and 2018 National Geographic Explorer based in British Columbia. She writes about the environment and its entanglement with history, culture, and identity. And then on uh, the following show... Uh, on Thursday, there's Matthew T. Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War, Building Socialism on a Warming Planet. Matthew is professor of geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. And as always, we will have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin on uh, Wednesday, and then on Thursday, we're going to have Sebastian Vupper and his segment, The Past into the Present, on historical context and how it plays out today. So before we go, as I promised, uh, here are the musicians who will be performing during our This Is Hell 26th anniversary party with doors opening at 3 p.m. on Saturday, September 17th at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. The performers will be... Starting off, playing at 4 p.m. will be Take Yokoyama's Mahjong Crib, followed at 7 p.m. by Pure Cane Trio with Ted Sirota on drums, Dan Chase on organ, and Dave Miller on guitar. And the final act playing at about 10 p.m. will be Trinity Star Ultra. Again, that's Saturday, September 17th, during our 26th anniversary party at Carrie's Lounge in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Find details at our event page on Facebook, which is getting a ton of response. Very oddly, I posted it on a Labor Day, on Labor Day, and I didn't think anybody would be responding because nobody would be doing anything or trying to stay as far away from their computers as possible. I was really surprised at how much response we've already gotten so far for the event. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. I truly appreciate it. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>